Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. Hello, my name is Vonda Page. Welcome to Living Corporate Network. This is the group chat and this is a Radical Change with Vonda Page. Um, and the thing that's on my mind um, every day of the year, basically, is really around you know, um, what does it look like out here from the standpoint of out in corporate America, out in academia, out in the service industry, out in healthcare? What are your employers, what are companies saying, right? What are schools saying? What are institutions and organizations saying versus what are they really doing, right? So if you think about, you know, profiting off of black bodies, which has been done for over 400 years, probably more like five, 600 years, right? Because this is 2022. Um, and we got records of Columbus coming, you know, here since, you know, uh, the late 1400s. So I'm saying it's more than 500 years that this has been going on. And I don't really see companies that are saying things, that are advertising things, that are you know, fist and black, red, green and, and all of that. But I don't really see or hear from employees inside of companies around what these companies are really doing. So the challenge, right, for Black History Month, I think for companies, corporations, leaders, decision makers is how do you match up your words with your actions, right? And so when I think about my career over, you know, 30 plus years, um, when I think about just watching news, business, and politics for, you know, 40 plus years, right? Um, I, and I think about, you know, we have stories around our workplace experiences, right? That really speak to history. They speak to our history of being underpaid, of being undervalued, of being disregarded, being assaulted, and just having you know, absolutely horrific work experiences. And so what we're going to do today, um, and I am super happy to have Emily R. Williams with me this morning. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about that. So we're going to talk about, you know, go into in more detail, um, in, 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 in more, I don't want to say detail, but have more conversation continuing on what I've been talking about, right, with Jackie Abraham, Jackie Abrams and others right around what these work experiences are and what these corporate places look like so you know emily you know welcome um say hi to the people um and let's get it started my name is emily williams i'm a dei expert specializing in improving the experiences of women of color at work and creating psychological safety so very happy to be here. Um, you know, I also have founded um, a company called Forward Ever Global, uh, where we work with organizations and leaders um, to help them build workplace cultures that actually model racial equity. So I think this is a great time to be having this conversation as it is Black History Month, because, you know, so oftentimes, um, you know, companies are making statements or perhaps they're making gestures, but really when we ask the question, how can they actually model racial equity um, that gets us deeper into the issue, right? Um, so I think it's, I think it'll be great to really dig in here. Let's talk about it. You, you, so you trigger me with the word gestures. Let's talk about some of these gestures that companies are doing, right? So, you know, I've been trying not to pay too much attention because I get too mad. But uh, I, I was I know I saw something on social media earlier this week. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a black woman shopping uh, in the black doll aisle. Okay. She's in Montana. Did you see this? She's in Montana. 
they following the lady at the door. They following her. She's trying to buy black woman. Trying to buy Black History Month items. They are following her in the store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm not surprised. And, you know, Vonda, the example that I thought you were going to give is the one about Bath and Body Works. Did you hear about that? I one? didn't. No. Yeah. Well, you know, it's this idea that, um, you know, I think for me, the biggest what seems apparent during Black History Month, especially as Black History Month intersects with consumerism, is that there's a lack of an analysis about how capitalism can be inherently anti-Black, right? Can be oppressive to Black folks and has throughout history, right? That's what some of these examples are showing. And I think even at our like workplaces and our companies, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, I said gesture because, okay, sure, people may be showing up in the way that the company suggests, or they may be showing up in the way that they saw on a social media post, but that so oftentimes does not, um, even begin to um, sort of chip away at any kind of structural inequity, right? Which is at the heart of racism, you know, and anti-Black racism in particular. Um, so I think that that's, I think we, I, I don't think we need to get there. I think we need to get there, period. Not only in Black History Month, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, the tie-in, right, that you brought up to consumerism, that's the part that bothers me. Because for my, my thing is this. And so, you know, so I grew up, I think I told you when we spoke, I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right? And I grew up in the 70s. And fortunately for me and people who grew up with me and in neighborhoods like mine and communities like mine across America, I had black teachers. Now, I had white teachers, too, but the principal was black. The vice principal was black. They were women and they were graduates of, you know, Harvard and Spelman and all these, you know, amazing black schools and they were like hey this is what you need to learn and this is you know whatever so for me right and people in my community right who had that experience black history month was just the opportunity to just take it to another level because black people are part of history like we know right like we know the cradle of civilization is africa so we know that we that without us there would be no anything right and we know America wouldn't would be, it, you know, America would not have been beyond what the indigenous folks of America wanted it to be, right? And what they did, right? And so, and so, okay. the right. whole, the whole historical frame of all of it, of of white supremacy, is capitalism. That's why it's being upheld, you know. And so, when I think about Black History Month having become this consumerized thing you know, years and or decades later, after for me, it was like when they when they made it a thing, we were like, OK, this is the month to go all out. So this is the month where you learn about somebody that you never heard of. This is the month you do some deeper research and you come in like, you know, with some 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 whole nother thing that we're not already talking about because it's not part of our common lexicon of discussion. It's not part of what the pedagogy is in school. So people don't talk about it by having black teachers, right? And especially black women teachers. And I think if they HBCU graduate, black educators, then all I'm getting is the truth. Hey, Heather, you know, all I'm getting is the truth. All we getting is the, is it, right? And so when we think about, when I think now, especially, you know, at 52 years old, thinking about how, what black history month used to mean and be, and now I'm looking at it, and then when I look at it through both of those lenses, the consumerism lens and the mm -hmm. worker lens, right? When I was a worker in corporate America and I'm like, all I see is exploitation with no meaningful action, right? So to your point, right? And, and what you specialize in, right? In terms of really helping organizations come up with specific strategies and actually doing it from the standpoint of what's going to make meaningful and measurable change that's the still big giant ass gap we have right between what we talking about the gestures in which we're participating right versus what's actually happening mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I want to say first, Vonda, I'm envious of your experience because I didn't have Black teachers until I was in college. Um, and my parents, you know, they were educators. And so they really, you know, in my family, of course, they really instilled a sense of Black pride and myself and my siblings. But then, you know, we went to school and faced a very different reality, right? You know, going to school, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s, growing up where we lived, I mean, we were the university, right? And so that's a completely different kind of experience, which, um, you know, was difficult, right? Um, it and, had and, to be. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it would have to be because, and, and it's funny, because when you said that, I'm like, like I feel sorry for every black child that don't have that that that, that had only white teachers because I can't even imagine how different that was. And and I mean having a black mother, right, will help, of course, but that's not the same thing as having the day in, day out experience of other black women and men, right? And seeing them in leadership, seeing them smart and strong. And so you you I mean you just gave you just brought so much back for me right around like what that was and you reminded me of one of the baddest teachers I had I mean bad like bad bitch bad like ugh her name was Mrs. Purnell and mm -hmm. she was my 6th grade homeroom teacher and I think she was I think history yeah because the other black teacher that was bad as hell like her she was geography so you know how they do social studies, history, geography? They both had kind of the mix of those. Anyway, I was in sixth grade. So in sixth grade, I got bused to an all-white school. So it was like Little Rock Nine, but it was Philly. So it was like we going from one neighborhood in Philly, black neighborhood, to a white neighborhood. Now, I thought about this and how deep and messed up this was. First of all, they picked the people with the highest um, test scores, to, to take us out and send us to the white schools. Why? Why would you take the, the so-called, it used to be called mentally gifted. That's what they used to call it in the 70s, mentally gifted, right? Why would you take the mentally gifted people and put them, why wouldn't you try to like, I don't know, mix up the people that you send instead of a thing, right? But check yeah. it out. So it's an all white school. It's me and 16 people, <laughs> 16 of us. I'm just saying, it's just funny. I remember the exact number because, you know, 16 of us, right? Yeah. We go to school. We on the, we go to school. All the black kids ride the bus together because they pick up all of us from all these different neighborhoods from all around the city. And then we drive up this long highway called Roosevelt Expressway. And we went to um, Austin, me and middle school. So my two badass black teachers, Mrs. Purnell was one. And um, I can't remember the other one's name, but I was running for class president and okay. it was I was it was only me uh and one other black kid in my individual class right so each class had like 25 kids in it, it was me two black kids everybody else was white right and because mm -hmm. this is the late 70s early 80s we had a lot of second generation European immigrants in Philadelphia so it was Russians and Germans and Polish people like every country and either they they were they were born here and maybe their parents were born here, but their grandparents definitely weren't. So they had very strong European cultures of individuals like Greek and, and you know, Greek and, and Russian and this and that. So mm -hmm. it's maybe the second or third week of school. I'm running mm -hmm. for class president. So I run. The other black kid, his name was Todd Fox. I remember that because he was cute. Todd Fox, he ran, right? Vera Zajac, she was the Russian girl. She was tall. She looked like a model, like an ice skater and a model at the same time, right? A couple other people. Uh, this kid, Richard Kaplan. We all uh, say our little one-minute speech, right? I've been practicing my speech all week while I want to be president. They do it in alphabetical order. So uh, it was Vera was next to last and then me, Vonda, right? I stand up and I say, I want to be president because whatever, whatever. Little white Richard Kaplan jumps up, Emily, in my face and screams, you need to go back to the cotton fields where you belong. I leaped over to grab Richard because literally I was going for him like this. Miss Purnell took me by my whole body because she had me like, oh, I was like, 
Like I leaped for him, right? She had my whole body. She took me up and she like sat me down, held me like this. And she said, Richard, how dare you say that to a black person? How dare you? And I screamed out and I said something so horrible, but I screamed out to him. What if I said to you, you belong in the gas chamber? And he said, oh, and he just fell out. And, she, and Mrs. Purnell stood there and she said, that was just as hurtful as what you said to Vonda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. fact that she did not tolerate it, she did not. I mean, she like, she, and she was tall. She was a tall woman. She probably was like five. And I've been five, three since I was like 10 years old. She was like six, probably 5'11". And he was little. He was smaller than me. He was like a head smaller. And she told him. But, I mean, I remember, right, then we talked about black history all the time. And that year, we took a class full of white people mm -hmm. to the African American History Museum in Philly. Mm -hmm. You know, they was fainting. They was falling out. And my teacher was like, sit right there. I don't know if you've ever been. Um, and I don't know if they've redesigned the museum, but they have an exhibit where it's the belly of a slave ship. And my teacher made us sit right there. She didn't make us sit there. She made the white people sit there. She said, you sit right there. Mm -hmm. And they were like crying and they just couldn't believe it. And it mm -hmm. changed. It changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think these kinds of... Um... I mean, I think these kinds of experiences are really important, right? One, what I see that happens more often than not is that Black women experience these assaults, right? We could call them microaggressions. We could call them microassaults. But the, the fact of the matter is that they're violent, right? And they have, they, they create harm, right? Psychologically, mentally, emotionally. Many of us can feel it in our body, actually, right? So it's really important that, you know, you were affirmed in that number one, right? That like, that was not okay, right? You shouldn't ever have to tolerate that kind of treatment, right? And then even for your teacher to say, listen, you, you, now she dished out what you were dishing to her first, right? She also made the point that none of it is okay. <laughs> you know? Oftentimes what I see now more and more, and I think it's really harmful, I think it's detrimental in a lot of ways, is that Black women are silenced, right? We're silenced at work, you know, because it's like so oftentimes, you know, these kinds of assaults happen, this kind of aggression happens, and it's just brushed off. Oh, that's just that person, they're a little grumpy, or he's been in that role for so long, like, don't let it bother you. Meanwhile, like, you know, our confidence in the space is diminishing, right? We feel less and less comfortable being out there, being vocal, shining, right? Because look at you, you know, little you up there telling the class why you want to be president, right? And then you get assaulted in that way. What do you think that that does the next time you go up there, right? I mean, think about like a woman <clears throat> who is given a presentation at work She's like showing her expertise. Some guy in the front row interrupts her, right? Or starts to question her expertise in front of an entire room while she's giving a presentation. What do you think she's going to think about the next time that she goes into that space? Well, I hope that that person's not in my presentation because they interrupted me last time. Or I better like try to really just flow through this so that I don't get interrupted. What that amounts to is that we're internalizing things, right? Ideally, what should happen in those instances is that there is an external that someone else in the room actually shows up as an ally and says, hey, listen, you know, we really should not be interrupting people, right? Wow. Vonda has a great presentation. Let's be respectful and, and let her continue, right? But so oftentimes that's not what happens, right? What happens is you might get somebody who comes by your office later and says, Oh, Wanda, wow, gosh, you know, I really wish they hadn't interrupted you, you know? It's like, well, where were you while I was being interrupted? That's when it really would have made a difference, you know? So, I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know,
you know, I hear so much of this and when it goes and, you know, when we talk about workplace cultures, right. It's like these things happen repeatedly, right. And there's no consequence. There's no interruption. There's no accountability. Right. Um, and not only do, let's say like, you know, one woman of color experience it, but multiple, right. So, you know, oftentimes it's a situation where I'm experiencing it. I'm witnessing Vonda experience it, right. I'm witnessing, you know, Ellen experience it, whoever else, right? So, um, and that's when it becomes a very toxic culture because the other part about that is, and this is what we don't often talk about, right? Is that that too prevents true allyship, right? Or meaningful allyship because it then becomes intimidating, right? Because everybody can see okay, well, Vonda's being treated that way in the office by, you know, XYZ manager. And I'm not going to interrupt because I don't want to experience retaliation either, right? Like, I don't want to compromise, like, you know, my position within this organization to speak up for Vonda, even though I know it's not okay. Even and think about the relationship to history. So how were, how were enslaved people controlled on a plantation? Because you only got two or three masters right and you got the wife in the kitchen with a couple of little kids and you might have 15 slaves how are they controlling everybody right mm -hmm. through fear through intimidation and violence but the violence now is different it's violence against your paycheck right it's violence against your emotions and your psychological well-being right and managers they're not being a mrs purnell they're not saying hey hold on wait a minute and, 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 and probably, and I bet you, if you and I were colleagues, me and you would be on that same tip. You would be taken up for me. I would be taken up for you. And we'd be taken up for everybody else. And we'd be the two people ostracized in the office. Oh, yeah. They, da, 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 they trying to be Harriet Tubman and they about to get fired, blah, blah. Because we know the story. Because this is how it goes. But the thing is, right, as long as we let fear, right, rule how we do that, so, so I remember, you know, Wendy said it's lasting memory. I mean, I, I felt it even telling y'all the story because it's certain words and things that trigger it, right? I literally, my whole body, I, I just was going to choke him out. I was going for him. I was going for it. And he was desks away from me. Like we all stood up. Um, I don't know when these, when desks changed, but we had the kind where it was like a um, box and it was like a hole. So you stick your stuff in. And they were yeah. metal, I think, because they yeah. weren't plastic yet. <laughs> yeah, with a top, right? And so what we all did when you when you was going to take your turn, you stood up. And so I, like, jumped over. Like, I was on the chair. Like, I jumped boom, boom, boom. Like, boom. like I, like, literally ran across. It probably was a two-second thing. And I was on it. I had them. I had them. And Miss Burnett, like, she, she had me. And I was mm -hmm. scrapping that's why I know she had to be like 5'11", because I was at least, because I was 10 years old. So I, I know I was already five feet at 10, because my whole family kept saying, you're going to be tall. Nobody in my whole family is over 5'6". So I was like, I don't know why they think I'm going to be tall. But it seemed like I was tall at 10. But Miss Purnell was that much taller, right, that she picked my whole body up. Um, and, and so it was traumatic. And so in the workplace... If you watch a person get shut down, you watch somebody get treated bad, you watch them get ostracized, retaliated, and what do they call it? Counseled out or, you know, those different corporate terms they use to get people out of companies, right? And, and, and you say, well, I can't speak up. Right, right. Why would I take the risk? Well, and, you know, and I think the part about it that's even more um, damaging is that oftentimes, and this is what I see all the time with my clients, that my clients are often operating under some kind of organizational mandate around DEI, around, you know, equity, you know, be that like racial equity, gender equity, right? Or their understanding of the way that the company articulates social impact even, right? They're showing up, right? They're bringing their expertise, they're shining, they're making a difference, right? People are listening to them. You know, their colleagues are showing up to their programs. They're getting praised for it. And then not long after, here comes a clampdown, right? Yeah. And so I think the other part too is that it's like, okay, you know, 
I think now more and more, especially after 2020, we're getting to the point where organizations understand that, okay, yeah, it actually has to be more than a statement, right? I think, you know, so many organizations were pushed outside of their comfort zone by their employees, you know, via employee activism to actually issue statements related to George Floyd. Yeah. In 2020, right? Now that we're faced with a great resignation, which is, which people, not only black women, not only women of color, right, but others as well. Now we see organizations kind of saying like, you know, they're having the, they're having this reckoning with themselves. Like, okay, we really have to change things. We really have to go far beyond anywhere that we've been, you know, in the history of the modern organization, right? Or in the modern workplace, right? So I think that that's, you know, I like to see those shifts happening. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I hope, and I, and what I want to see and what I'm trying to, you know, hopefully encourage um, workers, you know, in these companies is a lot of things is number one, that they can take action, right? That they do have power. So for example, one thing that I am going to say repeatedly um, is that if you work in a company, if you're an employee and you send an email directly to an officer of that company, a complaint about something that's wrong, whether it's discrimination, harassment, assault, underpay, whatever, they have an obligation to respond. And that is the beginning of accountability. So don't have this thing where you feel like, you you know, because the when you think about proximity to power, right? Um, and it's Black History Month, and we just are kind of talking about history because history tells us everything we need to know about the present, doesn't it? So when you think about um, the the hierarchy, right, of enslaved people, right, and you had field slaves and you had house slaves, but you had overseers, right, and head head slaves, right. So you have foremans, right, and supervisors, just like you do in corporate America. Right. So the person that is assigned to work Mm -hmm. and and manage you directly, that's your foreman, that's your supervisor. That person is in their vested interest to control you, to make you, you know, small, to keep you down because they don't want you going to their manager's manager. And in these companies, you know how they a lot of companies that are very hierarchical, especially the larger companies, especially tech organizations, right? And global organizations. And you got, you know, the C-level, then you got this EVP, then you got the SVP, then you got the VP, then you got the, the, the. Go right to your CEO. Email that person. Dear Susie, this is happening. I'm in this department, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to email your manager and your manager's manager and HR. And let's talk about this, right? Because I know that most of your clients, and I would venture to say, without us even having talked about your client pool, that I would say 90% of your clients, if they are within the talent or people organization, right, that the DEI function is not reporting to the CEO where it needs to be. Am I right? Right. You're right about that. That is correct. So, okay. So if DEI, the head function, that, that, that the function, the process, and the person over it doesn't report to the CEO, then where is the accountability? Because if it's under human resources, talent management or whatever, that's a legal function. And that function is how do we extract the most and exploit the most from the people so we can do the best in our different performance categories, especially if you're talking about a for-profit company that's on NASDAQ, you know what I mean? That that that's 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 traded publicly. So that whole hierarchy, right, is still it still exists. And so when you think about the clients, right, you think about about where DEI, right, inclusion, diversity, equity, justice, belonging, whatever we call it in, in these different flavors, when you're seeing it fit under HR. Talk about what you see as the problem with that, because I could talk about it all day, but I want to hear, you know, you being in the trenches and being right there, what's it look like and how is that helping or hindering 
progress for the employees right there in those organizations? Yeah, well, you know, I can tell you from my own experience, having gone to human resources, you know, it didn't make much of a difference, you know, and in fact, I felt like it contributed to the gaslighting. I feel like it contributed, it prolonged, you know, the harassment and the bullying and the discrimination that I was experiencing. Um, and I see that that is also true for the women, um, for my clients, right, is that, you know, they may be able to find, you know, a sympathetic ear in HR, right, but yet and still not much about their situation changes, right? After they've reported to HR. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's more than um I think it's I think it's also a problem with the structure of our organizations, how we understand DEI, where we think DEI should be. Um, and then, you know, to your earlier point, Vonda, how we value Black women, right? I mean, you know, it is, um, you know, but I'm trying to think of a client who her direct supervisors were not involved in the harassment, the bullying, the microaggressions, right? And in almost all of the cases, it's like her manager and her manager's manager, right? So I think, you know, I think that that hierarchy in, in the, the power differentials, I think, is inherently problematic, right? Because it's almost like we're saying, okay, well, you have authority over this other person. When we think about a person's job, it's their livelihood, right? It's like their insurance for themselves and their families, income for themselves and their families, right? Even though we're in the time of great resignation, still it's taking people, you know, at least six months to get a new job, right? So that in and of itself is a power dynamic, right? Yes. And so I think, you know, I'm I'm relieved to see that employees broadly are taking a stand to say, listen, the status quo is not working and we're not gonna we're not gonna go for it anymore. I think that's and I think we have to look at, um, you know, more workplace structures, which aren't so reliant on a hierarchy. Because yes. you know, time and time again, right, that the people who get promoted aren't necessarily the best, right? Not Never. They're not the best leaders. They're not the, the great colleagues, right? But they're willing to play a game and they're willing to play a game in a particular way, right? Which is why I find it, you know, I think it's compelling. I like the ideas of, um, or like when organizations make DEI a leadership um, imperative. That's part of the way that their leaders are being evaluated. Um, because to me, that is, that's, I think that's a direct way that we can see change almost instantly, right? And, you know, going back to this notion around capitalism, right, is that, so oftentimes we have to incentivize um, you know, any kind, anything that um, you know seems to be outside of their job description, or maybe a little challenge that they would have to prepare themselves for. Maybe they have to do a little extra research. Maybe they have to go to a professional development around DEI to figure out how to integrate it into their leadership models. You know, you have to, you know, because we live in a world that we do, right? That kind of thing has to be incentivized, you know. And, um, you know, similarly, it's like, unfortunately, the moral argument for DEI is, you know, not always effective, right? Once you start making the business case for DEI, then you have people listening, right? And, you know. And that's historical, too. That's historical, too, right? Why do we have the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, oh, because Black people are human beings. Like, we right. know that. So like, but like, like we know that, we know that, but I think there's so many pieces mm -hmm. that go along with it, right? Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. sewn so deeply into just the fabric of how we all just operate, right? And so something that you said that I, I was, I was writing down, you know, about, about having to come up with different power structures. And be able to imagine new systems because we already all know, even the ones 
of not me and you, but people that have power to really do stuff, right? You know, people whose last names is like Gates and Musk and, you know, people like that, right? Who could really do something if they wanted to. There's no incentive in there for them to do it. So how do we, right, help people start thinking about, you know, um, what new different power dynamics and power structures look like? One example, right, that I'm, I'm doing is I'm having, um, so for the Future of Work Symposium, right, that I'm doing on digital transformation and accountability, one of the sessions with uh, Farzine Farzad, we're going to be talking about power and how that, you know, there are shared models, right, more democratized models of working out there. We are never going to convince, you know, the big giant companies that are, you know, 10, 20, 30 billion dollar companies to change what they're doing, right? Because we know that the, those, the people that, that are where they are, they, they are not going to give up that power, right? So what we have to do is in addition to masking our own power and, and bringing our resources together is really start saying, do we really need to stay and remain part of that structure or are there some alternatives? Now, you know, the interesting thing about, you know, I, I knew I might as well just keep all these books on my desk now, but John Graham, I don't know if you read this book, it's called Plantation Theory. So um, John, John Graham um, talks about the black professional struggle between freedom and security, right? So it's not like you could be at work. I, I've been, uh, I just, you know, started uh, being on TikTok and there's a, there was a thing on a person who posted about how, how you, how black people would be at work if we could be like that. Like if, if somebody could touch your hair, you'd be like, bitch, I'll smack the shit out you. Or, you know what I mean? Like if you could respond appropriately for the thing happening to you, what would it look like? It would look like you wouldn't have a job for more than five minutes because the second you walk in the door, even if they treat you nice the whole first day, right? Your brand new first day on the job, you're still the pet and they love you. The next day, even if they ain't say nothing, the next day, you know they're gonna say something about your hair or your glasses or where you're from or are you all black or are you half black? You remind me of this other black person I know. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know her? <laughs> I'm gonna ask, do I know people? Right. How would I know this person? Right, 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 right. 60 million black people in the world. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. And no, I don't look like the one black person you know. No, I don't, you know? <laughs> but here's the thing, Vonda, we don't even have to have like a strong response, right? I mean, I can't tell you nope. the number of people have you know said things about my hair or you know made just off-color comments and even when i just responded to say oh you know that sounds inappropriate or i don't appreciate that i'm automatically labeled as angry angry you know, angry angry <laughs> you know we don't even have to go far right we don't even have to have a strong we can just be we can respond as meekly as possible and still we can be labeled right as angry Emily's difficult, she's causing problems, she's problematic, because what? Because I said that, you know, I still probably need microaggression. So it's like, we don't even have to go that far. Yes, being asked, what are you? Yes, Wendy, I see that, yes. <laughs> you know, and at this point, right, as someone who's biracial, right, of mixed race, it's like saying, you know, you know, there are ways to kind of put it back on people, right, which I have come to enjoy because I just, you know, I never tell this to the women I coach. I wouldn't tell this to women that I, you know, young women that I mentor. You do not have to suffer through my great microaggressions so that someone else is comfortable, right? You do not have to sustain harm so that other people can feel comfortable. No, you don't. And, you know, I think one huge change, um, you know, I think it's definitely going to come from the bottom up, right? I mean, we've seen that from, you know, when I mentioned earlier, the employee activism, mm -hmm. we see, uh, you know, the killing of George Floyd. We see that with the great resignation. And, you know, when women of color speak up about what they're experiencing, you know, that creates change. It's not necessarily an easy process, right? Because we know the retaliation is coming. We know the gaslighting is coming. We know the dismissal is coming. But that doesn't change anything about what we're experiencing. And that doesn't change anything about our power. Not a thing, right? And so, you know, when we continue to be affirmed in our experiences and affirm that it's not OK, 
okay and that we're not going to allow this to happen for us or anybody else in the workplace or anyone who comes afterwards, then we see change, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes to commit to it. And it is a difficult process. It's hard, right? It's not easy. But and I it's think a component of creating change. Yeah. And I think for me, it's my my challenge for me is unlearning how to not comfort white people. Because in the workplace, right, their tears. So I feel so when you said I don't appreciate that. And I can imagine you say, and you're right. You could say anything in the meekest, gentlest, babyest tone, and you are angry. And it doesn't even matter. That thing about being asked, what are you? The first time I was asked that, I was 44 or something. And I, I hadn't been asked it that exactly like, what are you? And I was like, I'm sorry, huh? What are you? I, I, I didn't understand. Like I heard people say, are you black or are you all black? But I never heard what. And so I said, what do you mean? Well, you're not black, are you? So what are you? And I was like, yeah, I'm black. Well, are you all black? And then I'm like, I'm not like, I don't understand. Like, I, first of all, I don't understand the question. Like, what do you, why? And what are you asking? Are you asking, are both my parents black? Yes. Are my grandparents black? Yes. Are my great-great-grandparents black? Yes. Was probably my great-great-grandmother raped by white people? Yes. I don't know what else to answer. Somewhere in the lineage, for sure. You know? You know, and I think... What are you was... That that one did take me, because I was like, are they asking me, am I not a person? Like, that one was was a little heavy for me. But that was on the West Coast, too. I've never been asked that on the East Coast, because I think they know a black person will slap the shit out of them on the East Coast for saying that. <laughs> well, you, know, <laughs> you know, but I think the thing that's, like, always, like, striking to me about it is, like, why do you even need to know, right? But what people need is, like, they need to, like, be able to place you in a category so they know how to, like, think of you. And so they what also... What value to assign you. What value yeah. to assign you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, you know, sometimes it's like, um, you know, I don't take it as flattery, but it's like, it also like indicates like how much someone is really preoccupied with like your existence and like what your existence could mean in this space. I'm not saying that it's like flattering or that it's like a compliment, but it's like, it's just another aspect of the the problem, which you know, also like relates to like what the women, you know, who I coach with the experience, because, you know, one thing that um, is so apparent when your manager and your manager, manager, manager's manager is, you know, strategizing how to make life difficult for you at work. That takes yeah. a lot of time. That takes a yeah. whole lot of time. So it's like, you know, when they're sitting down in their one-on-ones or on their phone calls, they're like, they are putting plans in place to, you know, to harass people. And it's like, well, that certainly is not, that's not positive productivity, you know? And it's also, you know, I think it's about intimidation. You know, the women who I coach are all stars. I mean, they are very good at what they do. And frankly, they could be running their organizations, right? And that's very apparent to their manager, their manager's manager and their colleagues, right? And so it's like, wow, you know, on one hand, it's like, let's really be affirmed in our power here, right? Like, you know, the way that we're showing up, that's a good thing, right? Our The contributions we're making to the workplace, those are necessary, right? And that's, you know, that's um, exactly why in many cases we become the target, right? Mm-hmm. And I think over and over again, right? This happened in my case. And I see it in the women I coach, right? As soon as they shine, as soon as they have a major accomplishment, their profiles raised in the organization, then here come some trolls, right? Some people making like the one good, the one presentation, the first presentation. And I remember, you know, I think about, you know, um, I think about Minda Hart's, her first book, The Memo, right? And I Mm -hmm. think all the time about, you know, pet the threat, right? And, you know, mine is personally autographed. This is my personal one. Um, <laughs> um, I just like bragging about that. <laughs> but, but when I think about 
pet to threat and how like they love you until they see uh oh you are greater than we thought you are amazing oh shit yeah you could do my job her job this job oh shit yeah you could run the whole thing and then they start attacking you and everyone would like you everyone would admire and respect you yeah do you know i have i have led so many teams just the team not the like department but the team or the project people Every every team I've ever been on, people will come up to me and say, "Well, how can I be on your team? Well, how can I work for you?" And I and I'm like, "I'm not a manager. You can't work for me. I only can hire contractors because they don't give me, you know, whatever, whatever, you know." And 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 I have never had, you know, um, people not want to work with me unless they were jealous, mediocre dudes. Like really, you know. And then I've had, of course, we've talked about, you know, those experiences that. Unfortunately, a lot of black women have had where you have a black woman manager who treats you worse than anything, right? I mean, but that goes back to Iris, you know, the, the anti-blackness thing, right? When I think about, and, and man, like I could unpack so much, right? With the two black women managers I had who, when I tell you, abuse me, oh, abuse me, terrible. This one time, this one woman, I work for her. I lived in Wilmington, Delaware. That's how, that's why I know Joe Biden. That's why I used to take the train with Joe Biden. But we take the train, get off the same stop. So, so I would be on the train. So I I lived in Wilmington, Delaware, and I had a project in Washington, DC. My daughter was still under a year old. So I was nursing. My daughter was born in 2002. Do you know what the breast pumps look like in 2002? They look like a computer bag. Like, like a, um, like, I, I don't even have anything big enough to show you. I don't even have anything. They are gigantic. They were this big. Okay. I had to carry a portable breast pump, a, a computer, um, a laptop, which was thick and heavy. Cause this is 2002, 2003. Okay. And a projector, a portable projector on the Amtrak train from Wilmington to DC to do these trainings and presentations. It took me like 75 minutes. I would take the Acela, boom, boom, boom. I did it. I could go back. The Amtrak had a big bathroom. I could pump in the bathroom. It was clean. Boom, 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 right? My manager, right? My manager said that the Acela was too expensive. She made me drive my car. So I had to drive my little Honda Civic from Wilmington, Delaware to Washington, D.C., three days a week with a breast pump and all. So it was a two and a half hour commute, right? Mm-hmm. And and she she made me do that. And she said she would not approve the expense reports if I took the train, even though the train was cheaper. Come on. Right, right. No, Vonda, when you the said- The train that- was cheaper. Right. Right. Just making things difficult. Right. And this is this is oftentimes, you know, it's these kinds of examples. Right. And this is why, you know, I, um, you know, I, I no longer I don't think I, I well, I don't subscribe to the idea of like, oh, but what about their intentions? Or maybe they didn't know. You know it's very calculated. It's very calculated. Right. It's like, you know, and, and that manager probably knew, oh, like, who's going to say anything to me about this decision? Right. And if she did, she probably had a justification in her mind. But meanwhile, knowing that it was making things unnecessarily difficult for you. Right. And when you said that, it really, again, something about it was healing, actually, because, um, you know, women and a black man, along with white man and white women who were very central to um, the toxicity that I experienced um, in my most lives. And, you know, it, um, you know, it was like troubling in a way because, you know, sometimes we enter into these spaces and we're like, okay, like we're going to hold down for the black folks because we know that it's difficult. Right. So we're going to just, you know, try to be supportive, like try to, you know, build some workplace camaraderie so that, you know, at least we know that we have one another. Right. And that works in many instances, but I'll tell you when these these particular black people got promoted to a position of power over me. It was, I mean, it was some of the worst things that I've ever experienced, you know? Yeah. 
you know, what I would often think of, right, to just survive that experience, because these were also people, you know, with whom I had, you know, sort of built relationships with over the period of two and a half years, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, sort of thought about is that, and this is not an excuse, not even close, but when we are experiencing harassment, bullying day to day, right? This is why kids who get bullied at school often die by suicide, right? Because it creates anxiety, it creates depression. You feel like there's no way out, right? You feel like you have no choice, right? The, just the weight of the situation just comes bearing down on you. And so you need ways to actually understand it, to cope with it. One of the things that I thought about when I was really thinking, like, how is it that these two Black people with whom I had, like, good relationships with for two and a half years, but who then it became clear were very toxic, very manipulative, abusive people, right? What, how can I make sense of that? And the way that I understood that was that we're all responding to systemic racism, but we all are trying to respond to it, you know? And for these particular individuals, it seemed clear to me, it, was, it seemed to me that they were acquiescing, right? Yeah. They, you know, were going along to get along, were pleasing, uh, you know, their white superiors, right, as a way for them to survive, as a way for them to shine. Yeah. And, you know, knowing what I knew about, you know, their upbringing, their lives, uh, at least one of them, you know, has probably been surviving that way for a long time, you know. And so I think that that's important, you know. I think what I, one of the things that I'm just really inspired by, heart is that, um, is that, you know, so oftentimes my clients, they don't get bitter, you know, mm-hmm. right? What they want is they want peace of mind, right? They want to be able to do their job, focus on their goals, focus on getting another job, focus on building their business. And they don't want anyone else to experience what they experience, but it's not about revenge, you know? Right that that's important, you know, and, you know, again, I just want to make clear that I'm not making excuses for black people who cause harm to other black people in white power structures. I'm not making any excuses for that, but as a survivor of that kind of racial trauma and that kind of harm, you know, I found it helpful to at least begin to understand and have some root of compassion, right? And as opposed to I I mean, I think that's so, yeah, I think that's so important what you said, Emily. I mean, I think that is so important because, and and I think it kind of almost goes back to how we started the conversation and how you said, like, you were envious that I had black teachers. And, And I think that that's a real big part of it. So because I had black teachers at the earliest ages, right, and I was raised, my babysitter, okay, that I had, because um, my mom had a lot of problems. I, you know, I tell people she had a lot of problems. I, so I was always being taken care of at other places, which was good. And when I was home, I was not being treated well and taken care of. But I was also around a lot of older black women, like old, and they were like old church ladies. And they had grandmothers and aunties that were formerly enslaved people from South Carolina that moved up to Philadelphia. So I had so much black pride around me that for me, right, there was never really, I never, I never felt that I had to acquiesce at a certain amount, a certain level. Like for me, and I've noticed this as I've gotten older, right, for me, it was back to trying to make white people comfortable, but not comfortable when they are harming, but comfortable from the standpoint of me feeling like, well, I'm, I'm going to code switch right and talk a little talk a little more you know hey and a little, to, to make people feel better but I'm never going to be like you know I'm never going I never could be a sambo I never so so and I used to have people like that tell me my entire career that's why you ain't never going this that's why you because you don't know how to act you don't know how to do this and you don't know how to do that 
Well, because that's not who I am. That's not who I am as a, that wouldn't be me authentically. And because I did have, I think that strong foundation, right. Of those black teachers. And I told you, I, I bet you 90% of them went to HBCUs. I know a couple of them went to like white schools and um, uh, Ivy schools. Right. So imagine their trauma of being in them institutions because a black person in, in, in any PWI predominantly white institution, it don't matter corporate, you going to go through trauma and assaults consistently. So when I moved from all black spaces or 80% black spaces to 99% white spaces, I took my same blackity black ass, black, black, blackness with me. And yep. even though I got accustomed to seeing how white people operate, I still stayed, this is how I roll as a black person. And so for me, those times when, and I was younger that first time, and the other time was more recent, right? And, and I was much older. Um, I was like, what the hell's wrong with you? Because I didn't get it, right? From the standpoint of like, why you would need to do that. And, and when I think about the one person, they were in DC, that's Chocolate City, baby. So why are you treating another black person bad? That only, to me, that's a whole nother level. It's not like we in Montana, like the sister I told you got followed around in the Target because she's shopping looking for black history stuff in the Target and then they follow her saying she's stealing. So when you think about the experience, right, and, and, and what, that, what that looks like, how, it, how those interrelated pieces are, no way to uncover it without conversation around it, right? And no way to kind of dig into anti-blackness, how it really starts, and then how we carry that. So for me, I think mine was more of like, now I think about it, I don't think I ever had anti-blackness as much as I had, you know, white supremacist conditioning, because I learned super early that it's okay to be black. I love being black. I love me and everything about black people like i'm rooting for everybody black like Issa ray right i mean i'm buying every black book every because i just love black people you know and i love being black and i but, but yeah we have the challenges and stuff but at the same time it took me a long time to make that connection that you just that you just talked about mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah and you know about it too i'm thinking about it you know <clears throat> i grew up with um uh, with my black grandmother and my black father, right? So there was, you know, I had a lot of first starting with my grandmother, just a lot of affirmation in who I am and what it means to show up as like, you know, at the time a strong little girl. You know, she taught me you don't take anything from anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you don't let anybody push you around. And you know, my father, they both were able to just help me navigate the difficult things around race that would come up, you know, and at no point did they say, just ignore it, you know, at no point did they say, okay, tone down who you are so that, you know, you can fit in at school, right? At no point, right? And they also instilled just really beautiful community values. You know, my grandparents migrated from Mississippi right up to Wisconsin, you know, and it was like their extended family was there all in the same community. And so I grew up around that, you know, and my parents, you know, even my parents, my grandparents, you know, they were providers for people in the community. You know, my grandparents had gardens that they, you know, just would give their vegetables away, right, to people who needed it. My father and my stepmom, you know, they were both educators. And so they too made sure that like students or families that were in need, you know, had something, right? So I grew up with those kinds of community values, you know, and I think that that's really important. I want to see more of that, you yeah. know, because I think the other thing about, you know, when we get back to the workplace, right? And, you know, we can talk about the great resignation and it is a demonstration of employees taking action. But so much of it is individualistic, right? It's like, okay, well, I'm going to leave because I think I can get a better whatever. But if we think more collectively, I think we can have a greater impact. You know, so I would like to see that. Definitely. I mean, and conversations like this is a way to do that, right? And and so, you know, one of the good things about um, 
this um this streaming service and and the really good thing about living corporate is right so these conversations these conversations they stay so i invite you to you know join in the chat you know reply in the chat we can keep these conversations going and you and i you know we 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 talked and we're going to continue the conversation and i think you know the next kind of part about it is you know how do we talk about collective action in the workplace i want people to really start thinking about unionizing and i don't mean unionizing like paying a bunch of gangsters and people to no 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 i'm talking about y'all get together and you say okay what demands do we have which things are wrong and then you making demands and start doing things like that so we're going to continue this conversation because we know how important it is um thanks everybody for hanging out and we will see y'all soon. Emily, thanks so much for joining. And I can't wait to have more conversation. And um, everybody, thanks for tuning in. And we will see you next time on the group chat. So take care. Peace. Peace.